A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Jesus and his disciples arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swineherds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. The people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be God. God. This morning we heard a story that is cinematic in scope and filled with symbolic energy. It's the story Jason just read, and it has a couple different names. The Miracle of the Swine, or the story of the Gerasene Demoniac. I remember the first time I heard this story as a child growing up in the Episcopal Church. I heard the priest in the pulpit going on and on, as if, of course, everyone already knows all about the kerosene demoniac. I pictured a man covered in black oil, and a herd of pigs also covered in this oil, kind of like the animals I had seen on the news after an oil spill. You remember when there's an oil spill and they show you animals being washed in dish soap? 
So I was picturing pigs that looked like those animals. And of course, I was conflating kerosene and gasoline with the name of the place, the Gerasenes. And so I thought this must be what the story was about, a man driven crazy by an oil spill. Still to this day, it's, it's very hard for me to imagine the scene without a layer of oil all over everything. But that's not exactly what's going on here. So if perhaps you have a similar conflation or connotation or confusion, uh, let's unpack this action-packed story today. Jesus and his disciples go across the Sea of Galilee and far south and east from their home into a land that is not Jewish. Of course, Jesus and his disciples are Jewish, and now they are in a land filled with people not like them. And here they encounter a man, unclothed, raving, mad. Luke, the author of this account, tells us this man has demons and that he is homeless. So he lives in the tombs where dead bodies go to decompose. He lives in the tombs, that is, when he is not imprisoned, held in shackles by the townspeople. So Jesus tries to heal this man, but the man resists. What have you to do with me? The man cries to Jesus. What have you, Jesus Christ, to do with me? Do not torment me. Jesus then asks the question, what is your name? What is your name? Legion, the man responds. And so all of a sudden we wonder, do we even know who is talking? Has this been the man who has been resisting Jesus' healing? Or has this been his demons all along? Legion, the demons respond. And then they appeal directly to Jesus, let us go into that herd of pigs over there. Jesus sends them into the pigs, and all those pigs race down the hill, off a cliff almost, directly into the lake and drown. The man is finally free. Now the people who are in charge of the pigs, the swine herds, freak out. And they rile up the people of the town, who then in turn are agitated and ask Jesus to leave. Get out, they say. They are full of fear because they now see the man they knew to be crazy, the village demoniac, the man they know lived in the tombs, the man they locked up, the man that they were very afraid of. They now see this man is healed, clothed and clean and sitting at Jesus' feet. So they want Jesus to leave. The man wants Jesus to stay. 
But of course, Jesus can't do that. Instead, Jesus commissions this man to tell the truth about what has happened to him, to tell the truth about what has happened to him all throughout his city. This story has had several important interpretations over the years. Augustine, St. Augustine, wrote that Jesus caused the garrison swine to drown in order to demonstrate that morally and ethically, humans have no duties to animals. He thought this story was in the Bible to justify us being in control of abusing, killing animals. The French philosopher René Girard wrote about the idea of scapegoats. He wrote that the man is a classic example of society's scapegoat, but that Jesus reverses the story's expected ending by sending the pigs off the cliff when you might think the man would wind up being pushed off the cliff. Sarah Griffith Lund, a contemporary preacher, believes that when we read the story of the Gerasen demoniac, we need to be careful not to draw a direct line from this man's demons to modern mental illness. Mental illness is not demon possession by another name. That's an easy reading to make of this story. But mental illness is its own real thing worthy of exploration from the pulpit and not a useful metaphor for societal evil. So what is it then? What is demon possession if it's not an excuse for us to eat pork or an excuse for us to talk about mental illness? What is this story saying? Why does Luke tell it to us? Why do we read it together on the first Sunday of summer? What are we to learn today from it? How can we be moved by this gruesome, and if not gasoline-covered, at least certainly grimy and uncomfortable kind of story? Late last Tuesday night, I got a call from a friend who works at the Church of the Heavenly Rest on the Upper East Side here in New York. We had been talking about working together in this coming year to plan a youth pilgrimage to Alabama to visit civil rights sites. A group of adults from Heavenly Rest were going to go down there this last week to scope it all out and have a pilgrimage. And someone had pulled out at the last second. So my friend asked me if I would like to go. Now the flight was in less than 12 hours. But by some chance that I can only really attribute to the Holy Spirit, I had not one thing on my calendar that I could not miss for the next four days. So after some brief pleading with Don and Chase, with promises that this sermon would be complete, uh, I made, and no planes would break down, which they didn't, even though we were flying American Airlines. I, I didn't tell Don that part. <laughs> I made my way to Alabama early on Wednesday morning, and we visited several places as a pilgrimage. The Edmund Pettus Bridge at Selma, where the March 
to Montgomery began. The bus station in Montgomery where the boycott began. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s church and parsonage in Montgomery. And the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. These last two are a joint museum and memorial a few miles apart, put together by Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative. And they opened just last year, so you might have read about them in the news. The museum traces the legacy in our country of slavery to lynching, to Jim Crow, to mass incarceration. And the memorial honors the more than 4,400 lives ended by lynching. We traveled with the theologian and Episcopal priest Kelly Brown Douglas. And after every site we visited, she would share a few thoughts to prompt our reflections. She would share from personal experience how it feels to be the mother of a black son in America. And she would share from her theology that faith in a crucified Christ is faith in a God who has come to liberate the oppressed, a God who knows the horror and humiliation of mob-inflicted, state-sanctioned political murder. The man in the garrisons, let's not call him a demoniac anymore, we'll call him a man. The man in the garrisons also understood the horror and humiliation of a mob. And not just the people in the town, but the legion of demons who occupy him. Isn't this word, legion, so specific? Why does Luke not say plethora, or multitude, or many? Or why does this man not say, there's too many of us to count, Jesus? We don't have a name. Why do the demons respond specifically, legion? I did a little research on this and discovered that for Luke's readers, legion had only one literal meaning, a unit of approximately 6,000 Roman soldiers, the occupying army. And why then is it okay for Jesus to send this Roman army, thousands strong, into the pigs? if we don't necessarily agree with Augustine's assessment that God is saying it's okay for us to kill animals. Well, there's one view that the pigs are there rhetorically to remind us that these people, the Gerasenes, are not Jewish. That Jesus, as a Jew, does not regard pigs as clean. And I'm sure that is a part of it. But there is also a more clever reading I discovered in my research on legion, and it is this. The logo of the specific legion that sieged and destroyed Jerusalem was a pig. What if Luke's readers knew that, and they almost certainly did, and would then understand Jesus' act as an ironic self 
destruction, self-immolation of the ultimate enemy. Legion destroying legion, pig destroying pig. If you can think of a politicized animal in our own climate, not that hard, right? A donkey, an elephant. Perhaps you can imagine how an image like this would work in our modern context. Jesus frees the man from his oppressors, the legion, by asking him his name. Then he makes this man really the first disciple to non-Jewish people by telling him to go out and tell his story of freedom. The people, the regular people, the townspeople are frightened by this healing that has taken place. When they see the man fully clothed and calm, they really can't believe it. They don't want this disruption to their status quo, perhaps. Or maybe it's the question, can they trust that the 6,000 are really gone? That they won't rise up from the lake and enter one of them? Our country's government, as we all know, was founded with a core principle that the church and the state should be separate. But if you read the founders' plans for how this would work functionally, you will see this did not mean that the church and the state should not be in relationship with one another. Of course not, because the moral fiber the moral identity that guides a government's decisions must come from some place. The functioning of our government is not founded to produce a national morality. So the separation of church and state, of faith institution and state, should mean that one church does not have absolute control over how we run, and that is a good thing. But it should not mean that our lives of faith, your life of faith, has no bearing on how our government functions. In the story of the Gerasene man, Jesus calls us out of our tendency to join the mob. Jesus calls us out of our willingness to cower in fear, our desire to uphold the status quo. And Jesus calls us into a position of what Kelly Brown Douglas calls moral imagination. Our country needs moral imagination right now. You are here this morning because Jesus is the one who compels you. Jesus is the one who will free you. Jesus will free you from your demons so that you can be free from your oppressors too. So that you can imagine a world that is different from the way it is now. If you don't believe me about this, just read the letter from St. Paul. 
Paul knew it. Paul knows it as he writes to the church in Galatia, to the people just like you trying to be Christian. He reminds them, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Here is a vision that looks a lot like what Jesus wants for us. Our group from Grace Church, who spent months and months working together with our friends in the Muslim organization who is Hussein, working together to build a house for a family from Bangladesh. Together, the house was completed yesterday. Unity House. A vision of a different world realized where the barriers that society puts up, Muslim, Christian, immigrant, American, where the barriers that society puts up between people were torn down, and you did that, even if, like me, you were not actually there yesterday in Queens, just by virtue of being here now, part of this church, you were part of that work. Where is God calling us next? Where is God calling you next? I urge each of you, all of us here today, to approach the coming week, the coming season of summer, ready for the legion of oppressing forces in this world to leave. You go out in the world ready for the legion to leave. Imagine yourself standing before Jesus like the man in our story. Ask him, what have you to do with me, Jesus? And listen for his answer. This will take a little moral imagination. But we cannot afford to be afraid of the healing that will happen if you follow Jesus' call. Our world needs you to do it. Amen.